0: Hey, okay, good morning. Well, will try to get started here in this new year. So let's uh, go ahead and pray as we start this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be at your feet once again, learning from you through your word. Father, we do desire to please you, and we thank you that you have given us your spirit and given us your word guide us and the strength of us and empower us. Would you do that this morning for the glory of Jesus? In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Happy New Year everyone. New Year. I know uh, many were traveling and, uh, and some are still traveling. I know school doesn't go back to, until tomorrow for many folks. Do you, you go back tomorrow as well? Okay. So, full week coming up. Um, but it's good to be back with the Lord. So, um, for those that are new this morning to this class, you know I'll, I'll be producing more copies of the notes. But it's um, discovering the New Testament, a journey through the Word of God, and we've been taking some time to look at the different books that God has given us, and what we know is the New Testament. And with each book, we look a little bit at the background. Now, we're not exhausted in any of the books. It's more like a survey. A, 32,000 foot flyover where we're just looking at the main message and seeing the contour of the land of each book, the background, who wrote it, when did they arrive, what were the historical circumstances. And then what are those unique things in each book that we see in the providence of God that helps us to have a greater understanding of the Word of God. So we would be missing something if we didn't have each of these 27 gifts. And God knew that because it's his word, and he chose those 27 out of, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of other letters and so-called gospels and other things that were out there, um, but these are the ones that have the fingerprints of God the Holy Spirit on them, that the church has recognized, not decided on, but has recognized for two millennia that these are the works that have come as it were, from the hand of God. So today we want to look at a little book that perhaps we don't talk a lot about, uh, but there it is, it's hidden tucked away, it's the smallest letter in the Apostle Paul, and I know there's even a starts with some discussion on how do we even pronounce the name, I'm going to settle on Philemon, okay, when I was uh, with the Arabs it was something different, when I with the French it was something different, but I'm going to settle on Philemon, Mainly because that was more the habit that I had when I became a believer in how to pronounce it. If you pronounce it a different way, just bear with me. Uh, For the purposes of today, uh, we'll find out when we meet him, how he preferred that his name be pronounced. My understanding of Greek is Philemon. So, if you want to say Philemon, I have no issue. Because it doesn't change the context at all. So, uh, there's actually quite a bit in this book, though it might not seem so at first glance. What's a little bit of the background? Well, we find Paul as he writes this letter in a Roman prison. And according to Acts 28, he was allowed to receive visitors while he was in prison. And there was a series of letters that he wrote about the same time that we call the prison epistles. For obvious reasons. Those are the ones he wrote when he was in prison around the year eighty-two uh, AD sixty-two. I'm going to get a different marker. And I've asked this before, but let's review. What are those four books that he wrote about this time?
1: Ephesians, Ephesians,
0: <clears throat> Philippians, Philippians, Galatians, and Colossians,
1: Colossians,
0: Colossians, and Philemon. Which is why I've lumped it in in this category, because in the organizing in our Bibles, it comes at the end, after what we call the pastoral epistles of 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And part of the reason for that was this how they organized it. They took all the letters of Paul and basically blamed it from longest to shortest, put them in an order, and finally it is the shortest. But he in fact wrote it about the same time as he wrote these three, but with different content. So I want us to imagine Paul. Uh, He's under house arrest. According to Acts 28, he has to provide for his own needs. But he was allowed to receive visitors. He was in prison for a period of time. He's already served in prison for up to four years back in the Middle East. But it's taking a journey now, a boat trip to Rome, where now he's going to be in prison for a period of time. And he has visitors coming and going, providing for his means. uh, Visitors, I should say, coming and going, he provides for their means. And then one day, uh, a runaway slave shows up. Asking for help and protection. Now, this was a major political danger to Paul because slavery was allowed under the Roman Empire. In fact, there was a whole system of levels of slavery, and you were slavery was not only sanctioned; it was expected. And slaves could work out a process of gaining their freedom, but one of them was not escaping. They are not allowed to run away from their master. So here you have a slave that has run away from his owner. And Paul was under obligation, according to Roman law, to either convince the slave to return to his master or to take care of him himself. Send the money back to the slave owners, as it were, to, to buy the slave from the slave owner. But to just harbor him and put him at risk. So, I, you know, I put that as a scenario. We don't know exactly that Onesimus, the name of this slave, actually came to Paul's house. But somehow Paul became aware of Onesimus, this slave that ran away, and who was his master, who was Philemon, um, who Paul didn't know. And according to what we see in verse 10, it seems that Paul was the one that led Onesimus to faith in Christ. He says, I appeal to you now for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. That seems to say that Paul was the one who shared the gospel with him, and now Onesimus is his spiritual child, as it were, and Paul feels the need to take care of him and his situation. But he knows that he's operating in that world of Roman law, but what is gospel privilege and responsibility and everything like that. And it seems that, according to Colossians 4 and 9, that he knows Onesimus. So now he's in a bit of a pickle, as it were. He knows the slave owner and he knows the slave. And now both of them are believers. So what is he going to do as he deals with these two people knowing that Roman law requires? So that's all the backdrop of this little book. There's actually quite a human drama that's taking place in this particular story. And what we see, Paul, as is consistent, he preaches the gospel with whomever. Whoever comes, He preaches before kings. He preaches to the Jews. He preaches to the Gentiles. He preaches to the soldiers to whom he is chained as he's in prison. And he preaches to a runaway slave. We see Paul's desire that the gospel get out, and he's willing to preach it to anyone. Okay? So what does he do now? He's led this man to Christ, who's a runaway slave. He needs to make things right. Um, and we read between the lines... And verse 2 of Philemon talks about a number of people that live in Philemon's house. So was this a man of knees? Did he have a big house and he could have all these people living there? I don't know. But um, we, we can get, a belief, get an idea of some of the factors that are involved. We have believers now. Paul's a believer. Philemon's a believer. Onesimus is a believer. We don't know why Onesimus ran away. But if we look at verse 18, it's apparent. It seems that he stole some money from his slave owner. If he has wronged you at all, or was there anything charged to my account? There seems to have been sin. In any case, I believe that he was robbing from the slave owner. But maybe he had some sticky fingers as he was way out the door trying to be a runaway slave. Okay? And where would a slave go? Imagine you're a slave. Where would you go if you wanted to hide? You could go into the woods, I suppose, you could go into the mountains, I suppose, but Rome would be a really good place to hide because Rome is a big sandwich. And it's estimated that over half the population of Rome were actually slaves have actually put, let's say, a red shirt on everyone that was a slave in Rome, it would have been the majority. But of course they didn't do that because People people were not supposed to let know who their patron was. They were in a patronage relationship with an owner who would take care of them, who, for whom they would work. Um, and, and if the slaves ever got a of with how numerous they actually were, it would have caused problems for Rome. And so people didn't talk about who their slave owners were. So if you were a runaway slave, you're on their own. Why you he heard about Paul or how he came in contact with Paul? I don't know. Uh, we're trying to read in between the lines of the details that we are given here. But somehow he comes into contact with Paul. Paul leads him to Christ. And now the implication of the gospel comes in. In essence, you ran away from your master. And you were in agreement with your master. And Christians do the right thing.
1: So you need to return
0: back to your master. You need to reconcile. You need to give restitution if it's necessary. You need to own up to what you have done. You know, the gospel. It's it's hard. It makes hard demands on our lives because as soon as we come in contact with living God, we can't live the same way. We can't talk the same way. We can't do things the same way. The gospel just transforms us so that we will live differently, um, and that's the case in this situation. Um, so Paul decides to write this letter. So all of this is kind of a backdrop. I'm going to write a letter, and you're going to have. I'm going to write Philemon. And so he he addresses Onesimus, who's a slave, as a son, or treats him as his son, but Philemon as a brother, okay? And it's a personal letter. It's kind of, it's unusual that such a personal letter would show up in the Word of God. And yet I think God intentionally gives us such a letter so that we will see how do you handle a sticky situation, how do you reconcile And in fact, as we'll get to in a few moments, I think we have a wonderful example of what forgiveness and reconciliation looks like, just in the short letter of Philemon. Now, it gets even more interesting when we look at what Onesimus' name is and what it means. There's a play on words that's going on with his name. And his name means Useful. Now how does that add meaning to the story? We find out that the man is a runaway slave whose name is Useful. So I have a slave. His name is Useful. He's run away from me. Probably sold him from me. He's, in any case, he's not fulfilling the contract he has with me. He runs off. He becomes a Christian. Now Paul plays on his name. You know, Useful wasn't all that useful to you before. But now he's become a brother in Christ and I'm sending him back to you so that he will be truly useful. And moreover, he will be a brother in Christ. You see the human dynamic that's going on here just in this little short, iffy letter? There's some real dynamics that are going on. And I think that's what adds to the charm of the story. Uh, we, can, we can imagine the different players. We can imagine what's going on as he writes this letter. He says in verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough, of course it sounds like Paul, right? I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake. I appeal to you. (laughs) This is, you know, Paul is a master letter writer. He really knows how to turn a phrase. I can command you because I have apostolic authority, but I'm going to appeal to you as a brother in Christ. On behalf of Onesimus. And then look at the wordplay in verse 11. Formerly he was useless to me, but now indeed he is useful to you and to me. And so I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. You see the investment that Paul has made in this young man, that he's making in this relationship. It just gets more and more colorful the more we unveil these different verses that are here. I would have been glad to keep him with me, he says in verse 13, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own And So he's, he's showing how to handle the massage relationships uh, in this short letter. So he was a friend of Philemon who was the master of Onesimus. He writes to Philemon, received him back and reconciled to him, probably writing what well, he is the Apostle Paul, writing about 62 AD in one of the Christian epistles from Rome. Very short letter, in fact. Why would we have necessarily a it? Well, because I'm in the habit of doing so. You show the greeting. You show the farewell. Showed... But we have two main themes here. Okay? We see his, he gives thanksgiving for Philemon. Thank you that you're my brother. Here's my request. Okay? Uh, I, I get the request again. I hope to see you soon. I mean, just imagine. You're getting a letter from the Apostle Paul. He's saying, I could, in a sense, lord it over you, but I won't. I'll appeal to you as a brother. But by the way, I really would consider a favor if you would do this and consider him a brother like you consider me a brother. Oh, and by the way, I'm coming to visit you, so prepare your guest room. I mean, you can just—you hear, you can hear the, the the light coming off this letter, right? There's a lot of human relationships that are going on in this little letter, okay? Uh, and, and you know, when we have a chance to, to see Paul... I think there'll be some questions we'll ask him. he'll as say, you know, what was going on? We'll have lots of time to sit around and talk about these things. Yeah.
1: And in this letter, in verse nine, when he talks to um, Philemon, I appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now I'm a prisoner. So you know,
2: <laughs> Embellishing. He
1: want he kind of wants to you know make sure that Philemon.
0: Get Get the the idea. Yeah. We can almost hear the back of our mind, you know. Well, listen to your mother. It's kind of that idea that's going on here. Uh, And I just, I love the, the fact that God allows us to get a glimpse into the humanity of the people that he uses to give us the message. It shows that it's a real message through real people for real life situations. And aren't we glad that God. In the best sense of the word, condescends to relate to us where we're at. Okay? So no matter how far we dig and how deep we dig in the word of God, we continually come up amazed at how serious he is to communicate his character to us and who he is and what his plan is. And that truly every word in this book is by intention and by design. And so let's not look over any of it if we have the chance. Now of course... We, we read through the Bible chapter by chapter, books at a time. We have devotional reading. All that is really good. But we should never look down upon any passage of Scripture as somehow, uh, I'm just going to let that one go. There might be passages you gravitate towards. That's certainly okay. There are certain things that are more appropriate in certain contexts. But every word is there for a reason. Now, some of it is going to be simple because God just wants to show them that he relates to people. Some of them are going to be a little bit more profound. Um, I've had to grow my understanding of this because I really, there are certain things, you know, as a believer, I get through the first few chapters and books of the Bible, and then I get to Leviticus, and I get bogged down in some of the sacrifices and the details, and then I get to Chronicles, and name after name after name, and it's like, well, can we get to the point already? Well, that is the point. This has got a sword. Let him tell us. <laughs> you know? and, and, and he wants to show us who he's working through. And, and so I'm giving you a heads up. We're starting next week. I forgot to mention it, I just realized that we're starting in the Gospel of Matthew next week. And what are we going to start with? Genealogy. Huh? So I'm getting you ready. that You're going to hear a whole sermon on genealogy. Can you kind of make that a little more clear? You're starting there or here. In the worship service, go. We're gonna start preaching series going through the Gospel of Matthew. It's gonna take us a good bit of time, okay? But we're gonna start with the genealogy, and you know, as I've been reading through it, it's like, wow, this is there's so much here. Why is Matthew starting with this to get ready for the message? And you'll see it as we unfold. Anyway, back to Philemon. What are the two main themes? Well, the first one is personal forgiveness. Because Paul finds himself in between two Christian brothers and there's a dispute. And so he's finding himself needing to play as it were intermediary. Uh, he needs to get them to reconcile, to forgive one another, to have restitution. And as he said, he uses that word, onesimus, which means useless. Now it's, are useful, and he's saying now he really is useful but only as brothers in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think that they would no longer be sl- slave master, but I think it lays the foundation for that relationship, dramatically changing from slave master to brother, brother in Christ. And you have this, a, a short page of notes there and I want you to look at I'm uh, stealing it directly from Dr. Merrill Tenney in his book, New Testament Survey where he says that all of the elements necessary for forgiveness are present in this short letter. And I thought, isn't that interesting that God shows us what forgiveness looks like, how forgiveness can be practiced, and then how eminently practical that is for us. Is there a question? Yes, sir. I don't like
2: what if questions, but if Onesimus couldn't return to his master and Paul still wanted him to reconcile, is there a good example of that in the letters, what that looks like to Paul? Does that make sense? Like, if you can't, if you can't apologize to the person you wronged because of some
0: distance, what do you do? That'd be more like a pastoral question that we could consider because that does, that does happen. Thankfully, though, we have an example here because I. You're shaky. <laughs> well, a lot of us. A lot of us. Don't have that first scenario that you present. We have the other one. We actually have people that are alive that we can go to, but we're afraid to go to. We're afraid to take the steps of reconciliation. And here we have an example of how that was done. Okay? Yeah. But a good question because very real. What do I do if I become a believer long after the fact that someone that I knew and offended has passed on? What do I do with that? The short answer is we throw ourselves in the mercy of God. We confess our sins and say, Lord, I am sorry that this happened. And you're the Redeemer, and however you will redeem it, you know, is up to you. But so this is Dr. Merrill Tenney, but I I really like what he's put here. If we look at what are the steps involved in reconciliation and forgiveness, there's the mention of the offense. Um, Formerly, he was useful to me, now he's indeed useful to you, a useful end to me, whatever he might have done. That he's run away. There's not a recognition of, well, you know what, he, it's not that bad. No, he did run away. Maybe he stole from him. I think we should add another verse there now that I think about it. I'm looking at it. Maybe verse 18 we could add there. Um, The kind of the implication that something happened. But in any case, this man whose name is useful ran away. Then there's compassion that is shown. Paul wants both of these brothers in Christ to reconcile because Paul wrote in the letter to the Colossians about the same time.
1: He says, I want to
0: present to everyone complete in Christ. Well, one of the ways we become complete in Christ, mature in Christ, is we practice the gospel with others, which means to forgive, which means to, uh, to uh, ask for forgiveness, which means to reconcile, because this is part of the gospel, God reconciling us to Him. Well, the implication is that He's reconciling us as well with one another. Uh, there's substitution. I'm willing to pay the price to, to cover up what's going on. There's an appeal for restoration. I commend this to you because I think all of us need to grow. I need to grow in this area. I'm not always that quick to ask for forgiveness. When I offend people. I don't say it because well, we know it's when. For each of us, we do offend people, um, and then our, our response is usually to try to justify, well, I didn't mean it, or oh, you misunderstood, or it's like, no, Paul says you ran away, maybe stole some money. This is the sin. What is what would the sin be that I've committed or that you've committed against someone? Deal with the sin, address it, and then you now ask for the forgiveness and the reconciliation. Yes.
1: Is there an implication that this possibly goes? Both direction, either that the master's behavior or his response.
0: I'll probably imply.
1: Also needs a little adjusting.
0: Uh, well, I think Paul's appealing to that, isn't he? Mm-hmm. I mean, with, some, with, with the language that he uses by, I'm the old man, I'm the apostle, I'm your friend, I'm coming to stay with you. There's an appeal to him to recognize his parking as well. It's implied, not as directly stated as it would be with what Onesimus has done. But you're right. It always has to be. Except what is between us and God. <laughs> Reconciliation always involves the admission of wrong in both parts. Right? That there's this, uh, I am never perfect in a situation. Or I, I'm not perfect in every situation. I do sin. People sin against me. I need to ask forgiveness. They need to ask forgiveness for me. Uh, and that's just part of the human condition. Right?
1: Yeah. But God doesn't allow us, to my way of thinking, to say, I won't ask forgiveness until they do, or until they recognize their part in it. You know, we have to just do it anyway.
0: Yeah. yeah I mean, there's a, there's a lot of pastoral implications in all of this. Okay. Um, I, I, my, my understanding of all this is always to be my default to be ready to offer forgiveness to be ready to forgive, to be ready to reconcile. To be, but I can't control the behavior or attitude of the other person. So I can't force them to come to me. I can go to them. They can send me away. But my disposition should always be one wanting to reconcile, willing to offer reconciliation, willing to forgive. Um, but there is a sense where they do need to ask for forgiveness as well. Right. I mean, God didn't forgive us until we asked Him to forgive us. Right? With the application of forgiveness did not come until we confess our sins. Even though it was all available, but we know he's also disposed to forgive. But we have to recognize our guilt before him. Right? So I would say that our disposition is one of forgiveness, but I can't really I I can tell you I forgive you. I forgive you even if you haven't asked for it. And and now I'm I'm set free. Right? Right? But that person, if they haven't asked for forgiveness, won't necessarily receive it. Right. But I'm I willing offer it. I and I won't hang on to it. And I won't belabor it. And I won't keep track. And I just move on from it. Right? Paul is appealing to say, look, this is what's happened. This is the reality. Reconcile with your brothers in Christ. I find it's amazing that this little, little letter is full of just practical counsel for reconciling with other people. Okay? I think there was another hand. Did I see another hand somewhere? No? The second thing is, look how this break, the gospel breaks down social barriers. We have an apostle. We have a slave owner. We have a slave. And the gospel brings them together to the cross. And they're all equal as brothers. So, one commentator looks at this and says, well, you know, because some people want to blast Paul. <laughs> And they say, well, Paul never really specifically said that slavery was bad. In fact, Paul uses the imagery of slavery to talk about himself. He's a slave of Christ. He's a bondservant. He belongs to his master. He never seems to really come out and address the slave trade that was going on in Rome. He's often blasted for that. And yet, by this example that we see, and how he counsels and reconciles with Onesimus and Philemon is actually showing the way that slavery is broken down in that way. He cuts at the root of it and actually is destroying the basis for it. Um, I, I think people in the 21st century, and it probably was true in the 18th century, and probably was true in the 14th century, they give themselves too much credit for how civilized or advanced or uh, sophisticated they are. I think it's really hard for us in the 21st century to look back across the centuries with our understanding of things and cast judgment on Paul and how he should have done it. When he was clearly led by the Spirit of God in a way that did bring about a positive result. I think we need to be at least careful at hermeneutic humility that maybe we don't know what they would have done or what would have been better or what we would do in that same circumstance. And by the way, the slavery that was practiced in Rome is not the same thing as chattel slavery that was practiced in the United States and in Europe in the 1800s. It was very different. Slaves, oftentimes, of the Roman Empire, actually educated children. They were actually given great responsibilities as they ran households, including keeping the books, including managing the affairs, raising the children. Very different than the chattel slavery, which was you know, buying and purchasing people like commodities. So we need to be careful about what we're judging and making sure we're using the proper standard for judging. And Paul does say, if you have a chance to gain your freedom, do it. But otherwise, follow the process of where you are when you were called. Now that that's different than what we did as a culture where we did we faced something that was obviously wrong and addressed it and overcame king Yeah.
1: But keep he was talking about slavery, he stepped into political discussion more, and it would take his focus away from the gospel.
0: Well, I suppose that would be an argument in his defense, right? And yet, Paul's not afraid to address things politically, but does it in a way that is always gospel focused. Okay? So for example, when he writes to the city of Philippi, which was a Latin-speaking city that was very committed to Rome, and says, our citizenship is in heaven, he's making a political statement. Because they were very keen on their political citizenship as citizens of Rome who speak Latin, who are obviously favored, as opposed to all these Greek speakers all around them. And he addresses them and says, our citizenship is in heaven. He does the same thing when we say, we have no Lord but Christ. In a context where they wanted to declare Caesar as Lord. That's a political statement and a theological statement. So he didn't always avoid it. He just didn't get down into the political activism that sometimes we see today. Um, He did talk about using his rights as a Roman citizen at times, but then other times he didn't use his rights as a Roman citizen. And what was the guiding principle? Whatever promoted and advanced the gospel. So he was not a political activist, but he did not completely avoid politics either. Because in the first century, to say Jesus is Lord and not to pinch the incense on the altar to say that Caesar was Lord was a political offense. It was also blasphemy against God, but it was a political offense that could get you in prison. Okay? And so, the wisdom that we need today is what does that look like for us today? Without having a direct parallel. Okay? Um, so, Paul, his salvation and his hope did not come through politics, but he lived in a very political world and knew how to navigate with wisdom the political realities that he was facing. Yeah. But a very good insight. Yes. will But uh, we saw the indication of the gospel breaking
1: down social barriers in Jordan because they lived much more in world that had, if not slaves, servants that were very low in the world's eyes. And uh, in church, as master and servants sat, sat together to worship, it impacted others and came in from the Muslim background, yep. things that we never would have thought of, they saw and we were shocked and amazed by the implication
0: of the gospel. Yeah. And so to others in the world, this really speaks of the implications of the gospel that we don't think of? Yeah, to see a Filipino maid sitting next to her Jordanian owner it was a great statement of India, back the impact the gospel question. It was just more of a comment. I think
2: what you were alluding to is the difference between resistance and rebellion. Paul straddles that very, very gracefully because rebellion is not what God asks
0: for us, but he asks for resistance in nearly everything. Standing on principle, right? Principles of the gospel, opposing evil, opposing the forces that oppose the things of God, but saying, but our weapons are not fleshly. They're spiritual. And... That's a challenge for every generation of believers in the history of the church to try to figure out what that looks like in a particular context. And unfortunately, we have lots of examples from church history to show us what not to do. Not a lot of great examples on what to do. Um, Abraham Kuyper, about 100 years ago in the Netherlands comes to mind as one who was an example of what to do. As a spokesman who proclaimed the gospel boldly and implemented Christian principles in his governance and was recognized by the United Nations for his uh, wisdom and humanitarian is one example. Again, that was a unique context. Um, I would say William Wilberforce and his movement for abolition is another righteous example to follow of one who stood against social injustice, but never always at um, at great risk to his own personal well-being and wealth, but always standing on the principle of the gospel and the dignity of fellow image bearers before God. So we do see some example and never took up arms to do it. Uh, we do see examples and, and maybe we should study those examples a little more of what gospel resistance in your words looks like. And what does it look like today? What like today. Let's imagine a scenario. I'm gonna get way off of topic, but to be brought up. Let's say the Supreme Court in June comes out with a decision the way we would like to see it. An affirmation of life and the tearing down of v. way. Okay? That's so what I'm praying for it because I believe in the humanity and moral. Okay? Now the governor of our state has already said that if Rogers' Wade is torn down he will work to declare California a sanctuary city for abortion. And will pay for women traveling from other states to come to California to have their abortions. Okay? A very clear frontal attack on the sanctity of life, and I would say the dignity of God. Okay? We may have an opportunity very soon of what gospel resistance looks like. Okay? I'm going to you here because it's already a conversation that I've had talking with some people in town that would be in a position to declare it. I've said why don't we petition the city council of Oroville and ask Oroville to be declared a sanctuary of New York and take a direct public stand against the tide of evil that could overwhelm California. To me, that would be an example of gospel resistance peacefully, promoting the welfare of women and their children, and doing it in a way that is honoring the gospel and image bearers of God. And yet, will be seen as an overtly political event, right? Just throwing it there, I had that conversation, I'm not saying we're there yet, but I'm praying, first of all, that Gavin Newsom repents. Imagine if Gavin Newsom were to repent. A lot of this nonsense would go a different direction. Okay. But unless God the Holy Spirit does an amazing thing, that's not going to happen. And so we may be looking at what does it look like for Christ the gospel to break down social barriers as we, very much in the minority, seek to live out the gospel in a very hostile context. And we need to think through the implications of all of this in our own lives um, of what we will do. We have to deal with marriage already. Promoting a biblical view of marriage, period. End of paragraph. Nothing that the culture promotes. So in our churches, in our ceremonies, in our practices, we need to promote and teach and live out what is biblical marriage. And that's going to be our ultimate peaceful resistance. And I firmly believe that Christian families living out the gospel are going to be perhaps the greatest apologetic to the gospel over the next 50 years. Because I do believe ultimately, this is my hope, but I believe ultimately this whole LGBT thing will come to an end because it can sustain its own weight because it's based on nothing. Right? There's no truth to it. And anything that's not based on truth can't be sustained. That's what history tells us. Okay? There's no possibility there, a gospel resistance. But our hope is never in a political process. It's always in the kingdom kings, no political words. It's the kingdom of okay? Do what's right, but it's his time. All right, the second thing then is breaking down those social barriers. So now we've we've, we've looked at this little book, 20-some-odd verses, talking about forgiveness, breaking down social social barriers. How do I pick out the, the key verses? But... So we have in Philemon a clear example of forgiveness and a practical example of how Christ changes social issues. And I don't use the language of what is today called the social justice gospel. I don't use that language. There is just the gospel. There is the gospel. There is no defining term we add to it. Whether it's liberation, whether it's social, whether it's justice, whatever. It's the gospel. And the gospel is transforming individually and families with a reverberating effect throughout society. Okay? Um, it happens from the inside out. You can't be imposed from the outside in. Okay? The key verses then, whoops, would be here. I appeal to you for my child the message father. I became in my prison. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you. And... To me. What's in a name? Imagine having the name useful, but living uselessly, coming to Christ, now you truly are useful in relationships and in uh, kingdom work, and what an example of what the gospel does. It trans- actually transforms all of us, right? From that state of uselessness without hope, without God, to usefulness in this kingdom service.
2: That was kind
0: of a humble comment on Paul's book to say that this one-a-way slave was useful for him. Okay. Just a thought. If he really is in, 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 in house arrest in Rome where people have to bring in his meals, people have to bring in all of his uh, things that he needs to survive, this becomes potentially, at least it would seem, uh, a little parochial, a little self-interested. I think Paul's got a bigger picture in mind as he does that, uh, the implications
2: of the gospel. Okay? Yes? Jumping off that, it almost seems like he's, uh, he's trying to embarrass him a little bit by saying, well, he's useless to you, but he's useful to me. Do you think you're more important than me? you important <laughs> than him? Important than anybody? Um, he's really just trying <laughs> nice to stop it a little you bit. You know, it's a little bit like reading a text
0: message, right? Right. There's, there's no... <coughs> Here's hear the look... Right? you can't hear the tone I, I don't know if Paul would have said it that way and that was his intention and, and this has become part of the challenge of, of understanding the text you know was he being a little snarky or was he saying here's the implications he's getting, here. you know uh, my wife and I have this discussion you know, how do you help people apply the scriptures how exact do you need to get in a particular situation you know if you present a body of text how particular or specific do you need to get so that they see the implications in their lives? Uh, is Maybe he's just saying, look, this is really direct. You can no longer lord it over him because you are both now under the same Lord. You know, it could just be that. Um, maybe there's a redemptive aspect of it. He's saying, yeah, he looks like he was useless, but look how useful he has become in Christ. Uh,
1: yeah, it's a, it's a good conversation. I was thinking of the relationship... Between Paul and Jesus when he called him. Before he was useful because God commanded the church to spread and they stayed in one place and they used the, the zealous anger of Paul to go in there and breathe fire and spread them out. Mm-hmm. So he was useful to God.
2: That's a good point.
1: But he wasn't <laughs> useful to God until he called him and, we, and then now he's being used. Only hindsight gives us that right
0: insight because, like, oh, we can see where God was using Paul even before Paul was aware
1: yeah. of God being at work in his life, and eventually, Paul has God called. Him. But so it's like love others the way Christ has loved you. Okay. So Paul's thing, love as Christ loved me. Okay. Hmm. Yep. Other thoughts. Um. The example of a slave would be Joseph, who had many responsibilities and lived a good life, really, under uh, his master, he until <laughs> he got imprisoned by <clears throat> he, you He know, took care of the whole estate, as I imagine some did in the Roman days. Yeah.
0: He did have some difficulties keeping his mouth shut, though. <laughs> That's why he got in trouble. Um, before he. You know, when he was growing up. (laughs) Right, right, as a kid. kid. (laughs) Um, You know, I I look at this example, and we don't know. So we we don't go too far afield. Because we don't know what happened. They don't necessarily go back to Philemon. Were they, in fact, reconciled? Uh, We're not given the final word. I would guess yes, simply because I'm thinking if if I'm Philemon and I get this letter from Paul. Because it was a personal letter from Paul. And the fact that it is in our New Testament now implies that that letter was not lost. That's an implication. I get it. But somehow it implies that it was reconciliation. And we'll find out one day for sure. But certainly for us, we can take the principles and say it speaks to us today. But I'm trying to imagine, you know, Anesthetist, he was a slave. Let's say he did go back in a slave situation. He now knew that he had a new ultimate master. And so as Paul is writing, even in the Church of Corinth, slaves, submit to your master because you are unto the Lord. He now has a new framework of understanding his place. And, and it would be for kingdom purposes. And where I'm going with this is there are a number of Christians who have taken on positions of domestic service in the Middle East, who come from the Philippines, who come from Sri Lanka, who come from Indonesia, and they're Christians. And they're doing it willingly. Because they believe they can bring the gospel into places that might be hard for some of those like me. That's challenging to me. But they're willing to enter into difficult circumstances because of the higher calling of serving the Lord their master that they're willing to go and serve in these difficult situations. Um, with varied degrees of success, I would imagine. But their intention is we need to be a gospel people to all people. And you would be willing to preach the gospel as an inferior position. Um, Because no matter who you are as an outsider, if you're not a Muslim, they tend to look at you as inferior anyway. And so you need to find your identity in Christ, and your purpose in Christ, and your truth in Christ, and you can preach the gospel into that vacuum and void, even as they look at you as inferior. Um, Just an interesting missionary dynamic that's going on in some places in the Gulf.
1: Gulf countries of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. What other thoughts about Philemon? Yeah. I was just wondering about uh, Philemon is or um, Onesimus is also mentioned in Colossians 4. Four nine. Mm-hmm. Four nine. Oh. Yeah. When he sends him it? Do you want to read it for us? Sure. Uh, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities so in this it seems that the, according to that what is becoming a messenger now for paul right yeah. okay was this on his way back to i don't know <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question
0: maybe you've just helped us discover the answer there um yeah. certainly there was more to the interaction than what we have yeah. on this one page right going on behind
1: the scenes yeah if he said he was one of you doesn't that mean that he's been at Colossae, the church there?
0: Interesting. Yeah. Um, it might depend on which of these came first and how much time left. Is that a hand?
1: I just have two thoughts, On one is the fact that maybe this is a different investment. <sighs> maybe a whole different person. And the other thing, of course, is that mm-hmm. perhaps when Philemon had time to digest Paul's words, maybe he realized that Onesimus was going to be more useful
0: to Paul, and sent him back. Mm. Huh? That's a good thought. I don't know. It would be interesting to, to, to <laughs> in tease which case that thread all the groups. In which case, it would be the same Onesimus, but after the fact. Okay. That's why I love this group. Yeah. You know, we're just thinking, trying to figure out how to put the pieces of the puzzle together. It's a big puzzle. I don't know. That's a good question. Both of them. It was a good uh, um, observation. Observation. There's more room for growth, isn't there? Understand?
2: Yeah. Another thing that I was kind of thinking about what he was describing with uh, Paul breathing fire, spreading out the Christians, but inadvertently doing good. I've been doing reading a lot about Byzantium, and I kind of thought the same thing. I thought heartbroken as I'm reading it, but just now hearing what he's saying, it's like, well they, they broke apart the kingdom so they could feed everybody they broke the bread of the kingdom and spread it across kind of like like Christianity and the, like the fall of Constantinople is a very difficult thing for me to understand but I think what's helping me is exactly what he described which is that when you raise the house, the people build huts, and then eventually you have nine houses instead of
0: one and it's interesting I haven't given much thought to the second part of what he said there. This is the first part, however. Uh, in, in Acts 1, contentious. God had said, and oh, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses here, 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 and here. Yeah. And they stayed in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. And finally he said, oh. he okay, he I'm going to get assume. you out there one way yeah, or the yeah, other. Exactly. He got persecution and then what happened, they went out and they were preaching wherever they went. And it did get to Judea and Samaria and eventually to... Uh, but that's only because we have the inspired word that gives us an interpretation of history there. When we go outside the Bible and other history, we have to be a little more cautious because God hasn't necessarily told us what he did in that situation. Um, and we, we surmise, but maybe don't dogmatize. And make plans, that God lives. laughs well that's a that's a different principle to apply so anyway any other last thoughts i mean we can close early right no, close home early. <laughs> if we finish philemon i'm not quite ready to jump into the next book yet so um any last thoughts jim pearls of wisdom here at the beginning of 2022 was there anything to do with pride in reconciliation are we talking in general or are we talking in a specific situation
1: no just in general yeah anything involving pride why can't we reconcile
0: right. okay and I think you're answering your own question right what is it that keeps us oftentimes back
1: from reconciling? and another one is is going into things with the idea that yes maybe I am involved but it yeah. really helps with the greasing the,
0: Yes, and I think the Lord in His kindness leaves us examples, doesn't He? That's why we celebrate the Lord's table. That's why we have baptism. Because it's a reminder of our need. And that's why we break bread together because we need it to be... Our brokenness we brought back together. We all need to come and feed on Jesus, the bread of life. And He is building not just a relationship with me, He has made me be part of a family of believers. And he wants all of us to live out the gospel one with another. And in order for that to happen, I've got to swallow my pride, I've got to humble myself, I've got to go to a program to do it. Um, and it's at that point where the spiritual struggle settles in because the self-justifying or the explaining away or it wasn't that bad or well he deserved it, as if somehow I'm really in a position to know whether they deserve it or not, right? Um, yeah, it's that pride monster that needs in the world. One of the things I would say to myself is, how much is your pride worth, Jim? Can <laughs> <laughs> you sell it for any money? There's a reason why it's called, you know, one of <laughs> seven deadly sins, and it was the primary sin that led to the fall of Satan, the fall of man. Deadly it's deadly hope. And And that one that, that you told me, me. you said, well, yeah, no, it was this missionary that came into
1: South Africa that would like to get into evangelizing the Mozambique actually they had people who would go up and mine up in the, the Mozambique and he gave himself to entering the mines so that he might evangelize and we were able to be there many years later and they had the church and everything was uh wow. he poured out his life poured out his life similar <laughs> <here>. to <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> the story
0: Wow. Great. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, what greater
2: love is this?
0: Well, thank you for an invigorating a conversation. I commend a little, this little book of five to you as you read it and let it speak to your own situation in life as the, the eternal, enduring work of the truth of God. But uh, let's go ahead and pray and take advantage of the grace of about seven extra minutes. <laughs> well, Father, thank you for the time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for people. Thank you for the community of saints and thank you for the word of God. May we be guided by it all throughout this year. May we teach and admonish and encourage one another through the word all throughout this year. May, may we be a community that has hunger for your word and that will continue to grow as you feed us day by day and help us to feed one another and encourage one another because of the time that we spend in the word. So thank you. Thank you for this time together.